0: Hello everyone, this is Jacob Popio, the producer of The Apex. In this episode, we start a new segment called The Disruptor. Being a disruptor means you're willing to drastically alter or change the structure of something. Our passion is to educate businesses on how to use the power they have right at their fingertips. Join Jan, Justin Woods, and the disruptor himself to learn a couple of key things. One is, what is design thinking? Two. Two. How can I use empathy to sell more products or services? Three, why is it important that my brand is an experience? If you want to support us, there are three ways to do so. One is to donate to our cause at www.patreon.com backslash podcast. Second, visit our merch line that is proudly partnered with Envision Clothing Company at envisionclothingcompany.com. The final one is completely free. All we ask is if you learn something from this episode or know someone that needs to hear our message, share it with them. Please subscribe and hope this pushes you toward your apex.
1: What is going on Apex Chasers? So, Today, we are introducing something I'm super, super excited about because it is a brand new segment um, for the Apex podcast, and we're bringing in more people into the Apex Communications Network family, right? I know that you've recognized probably one of the gentlemen on my screen right now for a video that we've done in the past. However, having both of these people on the stream at the same time, not in the same room because of the Rona, we are (laughs) going to talk about how to disrupt industries, like the the amount of knowledge that is about to flow through this segment specifically, and not just because of the two people that are here, but there's also another two that we're going to be pulling information from to talk about what it means to be a disruptor. And we'll get to that here in a little bit. But first, I'd like to introduce both of the guests that are on here uh, with me today, down below me over here whoop, is Mr. Justin Woods. Justin, welcome to the show. Morning, John. And then over to my right, left, is Mr. John Coons. John?
2: Hi, everybody. Good morning.
1: So one of you has a name that is not your name. So Mr. Disruptor, hey, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, you know, where you're from, and why you're here?
2: Great appreciate it um yeah good morning everybody uh, my my name's John and um yeah I've sort of been nicknamed the disruptor uh, I guess it's because i've I've managed to live through three decades of of technology waves and technology turmoil um I live up here in northeast Ohio, but i call i i'm a self prescribed digital nomad I've worked all over the world um and and Jan and I got talking about this notion actually back last year before the, the the pandemic disruption hit about disruptions we're seeing in the industry, particularly as waves of technology come through and enable things like what we're doing today. I mean, 20 years ago, the three of us wouldn't be sitting here uh, live streaming over over the internet we couldn't afford it. The technology wasn't there. The bandwidth wasn't there. So, I mean, this, this this sort of is a great example of us being able to disrupt into an industry that maybe 20 years ago or even 10 years ago was probably relegated to the, the Viacoms of the world, if you will, right? The big boys. Uh, uh, players like us couldn't get into this world. So we've been talking about this kind of stuff for a while, and, and I'm really happy to be excited to be here to, to sort of pontificate as needed. Yeah,
1: no, we're definitely excited to have you, John, as, as, you know, self-proclaimed digital nomad and then the disruptor, but within the apex circles, he's fondly known as our Yoda. So, (laughs) (laughs) um, Justin Woods, my friend, welcome to the show. Why don't you uh, give yourself a little bit of an introduction to the audience so they know who you are?
3: Okay, Jan, thank you again for having me. Uh, my name's Justin Woods, and I work for a uh, company that makes boxes, so it's very exciting. Uh, met Jan uh, through Walsh University. That and uh, poor Phil, we should have had Phil on here, give him something to do, in the Rona, <laughs> you know, not busy enough. But um, the reason I'm here is uh, what I bring to the table is a uh, you know, sales experience, have uh, worked for the company I've been with for a number of years, seen a number of things, and uh, you know the, the one thing that that I've always had to do is jump into positions of work where I actually was very underprepared for the job, and teach myself through a number of different experiences to adapt and learn quickly, and, and bring a, a different look to things that often you know has has done me well because you know, it turned out in a, in a positive light.
1: Right. Right. Now, and so before we really dive in, because we do have a couple of questions that we're going to kind of work our way through, um, what I'm really genuinely curious about, and this is kind of a question for both of you guys, I, I'm going to read a little bit of a section um, that, that John kind of sent me as a, as a little explanation, but I really want to hone in on this idea of design thinking, because that's kind of a weird thing if you've never heard that term before. Um, but so this is the paragraph, right? So as one of the only people in the world to plant design thinking at the center of a billion technical deals, his stories from the field will empower any burgeoning entrepreneur to deepen their design thinking in their practice and any naysayer to give it a second look. So I guess, John, we can just kind of start with you there. Why should people care about design thinking when it comes to putting it at the center of different deals? And why, if they're a naysayer, should they give it a second look?
2: Yeah that's a great question and and it's something so let's start with a little bit of a story uh on how I sort of got here yes, so back in yeah, back in 2015 <laughs> um I was part of a of a acquisition team so I was part of a due diligence team that went after that was looking to buy our company was looking to buy a, another company a smaller startup And they had a very transformational very innovative solution something that had sort of wasn't mainstream within the technology software space we went out to try to sell it and we got a lot of interest a lot of meetings a lot of second meetings and then all of a sudden the the deals died and we couldn't figure out why and then what it really came down to was uh, nobody had done it before. There weren't a lot of references. It was new. And people just weren't willing to spend, you know, millions of dollars and in, in, in a year and a half of, of a sort of a typical traditional waterfall deployment schedule. Mm-hmm. So a couple of my colleagues and I sat around and we came up with an idea uh, and we sort of analyzed the situation and we built, we divided up the sort of what this software pa- platform did. And we, we identified the personas that would interact with it. We then sort of went and said, we empathized and we built empathy maps and other, other design, think- we used design thinking tools that started to dissect the whole situation. And we, at the end of the day, we came up with a process where we would work with our clients. We would take them through this sort of design thinking method Identify uh, value props um, and problem statements that we were trying to solve. And then we would boil it down into a 13 week sprint or an MVP that we could sort of phase in on an agile format and something that somebody could get in, low cost, high value, uh, quick hit. And all of a sudden we realized that this was, we were one of the few organizations, even within. Our large company, which has three hundred and fifty thousand employees worldwide, that uh, we we were applying things that sort of stayed in the back room, stayed in the product management, stayed with the engineering, stayed with the you know with the with the UX UI guys. Yeah. We pulled it forward into the sales process, and all of a sudden, we were really sort of connecting with our clients and putting together deals that really resonated. And I, and we built these roadmaps and design thinking they call them the cake roadmaps. So it's the idea of, we start with a cupcake, we build a birthday cake. Ultimately we, we deploy the wedding cake, all of our tastes good quick, but they take some are more expensive, more complex, take more commitment. Um, And so we've been now doing this for about four or five years and it's really starting to pay off in a very, uh, Starting to get you know traction throughout our organization, as well as our clients, seem to uh, to uh, really sort of resonate with the the approach.
3: Mm.
2: So that's yeah, uh, yeah. I'll come back to some other things on in a second on that, but that's the general idea on how and why we sort of decided to to pull this forward. And as I, based on my research, we're we're one of the few organizations that sort of take design thinking out of the like I said out of the design out of the product management out of the UX UI world and into the sales management world and it's been pretty effective for us yeah now now Justin I
1: know that me and you have had multiple conversations about just being scrappy salesmen right like going in and you have to make sure that you're using whatever technique that you can to find leads to find qualified leads you know you have to be able to problem solve on the spot on the fly on site with the clients Um, Now, when it comes to design thinking, uh, whether or not it was actually in the design thinking package or something very similar, but not quite exactly what that is, do you, can you think of like specific examples or like advice that you would give a salesman on how to empathize with a client or how to exercise some of these things (laughs) that John just kind of talked about inside of that design thinking process?
3: Well, yeah, and uh, you know, John kind of was addressing more of the uh the proposal and close phase of a sale. You know, the other side of it is what you do in the prospecting side of the sale. Uh and that's kind of what you were talking about with leads and being scrappy. And it's it's something often that gets kind of forgotten or relegated off to people who are at a lower level because it's not very fun, it's drudgery. But, you know, the process of doing that teaches you a great deal more about the people you're trying to get in touch with uh than then you get once you're in there. I mean, you learn so much about, you know, is this person someone who actually responds politely to people? Mm. All right. You know, I can't tell you how many people I've called and spoken to for years over years, and they have just been so fun to talk to. They never let me in there, but they're a pleasure to talk to. You know, so, you know, it's like, okay, that's somebody I want to do business with. And then once I'm in there, I'm going to be far more successful at developing those relationships. <clears throat> And bringing people in. And it's the same thing, you know, on the flip side of that coin, the people who, you know, you call for three years and you get nothing but voicemail, you know, and then the one time you talk to them, you know, they say, hey, why don't you call me back and leave me a voicemail? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's Man. like, oh, yeah, not a problem, Steve. I'll make that happen. Uh, <laughs> and it's what you learn uh, through those interactions. You're like, huh, maybe another personality when I get into this uh, account and, you know, once this guy retires, maybe uh, might be useful. So to John's point, you've always got to think, how do you, how do you modify what you do to get inside those, that person's head? Because, you know, through the phone, it's very difficult to, to build a relationship.
2: Yeah. I always love the one where they say, just send me a brochure, please. And I'm like, yeah, thanks. Right. I'm not even going to waste a stamp on you. <laughs> you know, it, exactly. Everybody wants a brochure and, it, and it's figuring out, you know, how do you
3: craft different strategies and really plan things out so that, you know, through that process, you break these people down and you get in the door and then you can, you know, bring the rest of the team. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: Now there's a whole lot of things that are shifting right now. Right. I mean, we have these, these sales tactics and strategies that people have been using for forever, you know? And I know when I first kind of got into this world and my dad was like, Oh, you're going to have to sell stuff here, read how to make friends and influence people. Right. (laughs) Um, That's like, Carnegie is just like one of those baselines that I feel like it's handed out to a salesman when they're born. <laughs> um, but, John, you talked about the industry going through these waves, right, of disruption. And, and there's something different about this current wave that we're in. Mm-hmm. Why don't you kind of touch on why you believe this wave is different and what the future holds? Yeah,
2: great. Um, yeah, so for of us that have gray hair, we've seen this sort of, as I said, a number of of waves um within the technology space. And that's what we do in technology, right? We we take technology, we make it bigger, better, faster, cheaper. And if you look at the history, really from probably the '70s, and I won't bore you with the, the with the history lesson, but we've gone through a series of waves, whether it be the the pers- introduction of the personal computer, or a client server, or e business, and cloud computing, and and we're in a wave now that um, <laughs> I think his, mo- his motion sensor lights just went off. Just stand up and wave your arms around, Justin. <laughs> so we're we're in a wave of of, of Cloud computing now, which, again, like this, what we're doing here, makes the accessibility of technology relatively, relatively inexpensive and available to we to sort of democratize the ability for uh, almost anybody to get their hands on, you know, compute and technologies that would have cost millions of dollars uh, of upfront capital. So, we, you know, we've shifted from a CapEx world to an OpEx world. Um, and, and, and again, as I mentioned, or I think Jan and I, you, I've used this terminology a lot. We're in, and and this is pre COVID and you just throw COVID on top of this sort of digital disruption that we're going through right now. Um, with, again, throwing COVID on top of that, we sort of got the double whammy, but it's like, I like to say we're, we're in a world where you're either the disruptor or you're being disrupted, right? You're either... The taxi cab industry, or your Uber, you're either, uh, you know, Airbnb, or you're the hotel industry. Uh, it doesn't matter whether or not you're a large organization or a smallerization. the The ability to to, to quickly, uh, as I mentioned earlier, to create MVPs, to agile, to, to deploy solutions and technology quickly, allow you to, to go into an industry. Uh, and 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 really, some in many cases turn it upside down. Like, uh, like I said, like you know, Uber is one of the great examples of just taking a. And it's not so much because their uh, technology is better. They met a a a need, right? They they there was an empathy to people like me that traveled. I didn't like to carry cash. I, I I didn't want to figure out if I needed to tip somebody. I didn't want to sit out on a corner and try to find you know wave a cab down. Right. I just wanted somebody to come get me, take me to the airport, so I could go home, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm seeing, and so it's it, it's again it's a it's sort of the perfect storm of access to high powered technologies and networks and bandwidth at a at a opex price allows entrepreneurs like you guys. And, and the others that I mentor to get into a business, create uh, applications, experiences, and we'll talk a little bit about the experience disruptor in a minute, um, but but create experiences that then can really, uh, you know, literally upset. It's the David and Goliath syndrome in all of our respects.
1: Yeah. I know that um, one thing that I've heard a lot of lately is that um, there's And I don't know how true I really hold this, but I was talking to somebody the other day that basically said that there's going to be a whole lot of Henry Fords after this COVID. And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he was like, well, he was like at that time, right. Henry, everybody was asking for a faster horse. That's like the example, right? Everybody's asking for a faster horse. Henry Ford is like, nah, I think we need a vehicle. Let's, let's try, let's try this route. Right. Let's, let's look at the, um, solution to the problem that the general public doesn't seem to see. Um, mm-hmm. And, and at COVID, it was really uh, like allowed, I don't want to even know allowed, maybe forced, forced is a better word, forced people to sit at home with themselves and kind of think about all of these ideas that they've had running around in their head for however many years, and a lot of them are coming to the surface. So all of these ideas are now coming out into the market, and it's becoming difficult for people to figure out what is that MVP? How do I get there? How do I start designing this? How do I figure it out? Now, Justin, me and you have had some conversations over the years, just of like, how do we get started, right? When we first met, and I will never forget this mastermind with Phil Kim, because he's like, the one that kicked me off of the entrepreneurial ledge and was just like fly little bird. Um, We were sitting in that in that office. And Dr. Kim, we were talking about something and I forget what I, I think I said, I'm not a business major, right? That was my thing at that point in time, because I was just graduating college, just starting to get into this. I had no idea what I was doing. I still have no idea what I'm doing, but he said, do you have an LLC? And I was like, yeah. And he was like, well, then you're a CEO. Start thinking like one, right? If you had to kind of maybe start putting together a little bit of a package, when an entrepreneur first enters that world, And they're first trying to figure out how to sell themselves to other people. What are some things that maybe they should try to hone in on when it comes to, Hey, I do have a little bit of authority in this arena. You can trust me.
3: You know, when someone's starting out new, you know, and as I told you, it's just got to try, you know, it's go out there, fire some bullets, you know, and figure out where you're going to lose. You know, what, what do you need to improve on? You know, that's what you really want to learn early is because nobody's Nobody is good at this stuff. You know, none of us are good at something the first time we do it. Uh, But, you know, as you had at the time, everybody tends to doubt themselves. You know, and that doubt keeps them from trying. And because they try, they never get any better. Because they never get any better, they never enjoy it. And if you don't enjoy something, you're not going to do it. And you're probably not going to be any good at it. So, you know, that's the thing we got to tell people is get out there and try. You know, once you try, you're going to get a little better. Then once you get a little better, now we can start planning on, all right, what has been successful for you? Let's, let's maximize those particular points and push the ball forward. You know, and start thinking of people, hey, you know, think it out at the beginning. You know, walk through this rationally. How am I going to make this work? Start playing with numbers. What am I going to do? All right, don't start asking yourself, why do people want this? You know, to John's point, what is the experience? You know, what is the, uh, the anticipated need that you think you have for the market and I'll go out and test that theory. And is your if your you know, if your intuition's right, you know, now let's start putting money into this. Let's build this, let's break this down and bring in people, you know, as we all have done, and start to bring in some people to help us. You know, everyone, no one wants to ask for help. You know, I might be good at sales, but I might be pretty terrible at accounting. You know, or I'm probably not Amen. the guy who should uh let, let me go out and do some HR. Maybe I want to draw up some uh some, some bro science legal documents, you know, feel good about. See, it's knowing when to bring people in to help you and what you should keep it to yourself as the entrepreneur who, who really has the vision and the passion. Yeah, and so, heard, How do we convey that?
1: I'm super intrigued because when you first started that sentence, right, you started off with figure out where you're going to lose, right? You didn't say figure out where you're going to win as the first step right figure out where you're going to lose and and the first thing that popped into my head is actually the first time I met John well the second time because the <laughs> second time that I met John we had to give a pitch up in Cleveland and we gave this pitch and it was for a physical space right with a crap ton of overhead a whole bunch of equipment we'd have to purchase a building we would have to build out <clears throat> and essentially that pitch was like uh ah, the idea is kind of cool but this idea actually sucks Like, you should go, you should go pursue another idea. And so we drove home and I remember just crickets because Jake Popio, my co founder, had been talking all day. I want to give the pitch. I want to give the pitch. I want to give the pitch. Goes up and gives the pitch. Bad reception. And we're like talking about it on the way home and we're like, okay, so what do we do now? And it's like, well, I guess we just need to chuck another turd at the wall and see if it sticks. (laughs) And, you know, we run through iteration after iteration after iteration. But what I love about this agile, um, you know, framework and design thinking, um, which we actually should probably talk about what agile is just for people that don't know what that is. So do, who wants to take that one?
3: I'm I mean, going to let John do it. Cause I was going to ask him to define some of his earlier terms, <laughs> you know, for, for the lay people in the audience, was that an MVP or an MVP or uh, sorry, that's my <laughs> bad. Is the most valuable player. On the yeah, yeah, no. <laughs>
2: yeah it, MVP stands for minimal viable product. And so, in in the in, in in agile is just a a it really like I said again, trying to apply some of these techniques that the people that are building technology and software. I'm trying to pull those forward into sort of the the sales side of the business, uh, but agile is nothing more. In, 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 traditionally the old days, right? Uh, you know, five years ago, you would, or whatever, you would have uh, deployed software. Let's say uh, a big company would go out, they'd buy SAP or something like that. I'll use a pick on them. And they would spend 18 or 20 months or maybe 22 years trying to deploy that software. So they put a big project plan in place. They'd hire tons of consultants and they would, what we call a waterfall approach. They would they would, you know, start deploying stuff over time, and what happens is, over time, people's requirements change. Right? It, it might have worked when the environment was fairly static and not changing, but as, you, as we, I mean, look at between the time Jan and I talked in December, between now, it's only been about seven months, mm-hmm. but the world's totally different. In fact, my whole business had to pivot as a result of of, of going virtual talk about that later but from what so agile is nothing more than take taking the time to break up that sort of 18 month deployment or development cycle or i'll call it sales cycle if you're selling large complex solutions and putting it into a, what we call a minimal viable product so something that is a bite size something that could be deployed quickly doesn't require a ton of investment um Particularly in today's world, a lot of organizations don't know what they don't know. In other words, they don't know what they need. And that's actually why design thinking is is so critical in my mind. It's because you don't have to try to do the feature function cell. You can do the get under the covers, get in their shoes, you know, as we say, empathize with them, which is really just understanding what they're thinking, what they're saying, what they're doing, how they're feeling, and then taking those sort of non- those become sort of the the pain, right? So people, Justin, you probably know this, people don't buy because you've got a great feature function list of stuff. They buy because there's some problem they either have or or trying to avoid. And in some of the sales techniques, they call it pain. And you either buy because you're in pain or you're trying to avoid pain. It's the only reason why people actually do stuff. Otherwise, status quo typically wins the sales. Um, which is not good for us. But so that's agile. It's just a method of doing things quickly in smaller chunks, allowing you at the end of each uh, sprint, as they call it, uh, which is just a, a small set of time, you then can sit back, evaluate what you did, make a pivot, uh, capitalize on what's working well, and then fix the things that, that or stop doing the things that you don't, you, now you've figured out you don't need. So that's sort of agile. It's a software development methodology that I think applies very well along with some design thinking techniques into the sales side of the business.
1: Yeah, I would definitely agree. I mean, And, and we actually use the, the agile framework um, for not just our audio you know, editing and our video and our content creation teams, but also for the business development side. I mean, it's very much set up so that we can quickly kind of pivot back and forth, right? Um, I I always heard, you know, whether it's the pain or not in pain, I've always heard that you can only really sell two things, sustenance or convenience. So you're either keeping somebody alive, or you're making something easier for them. Right. Um, those are the two things that uh, my dad always said are the only two things that you're ever really going to sell. Um, and then now, with the Agile framework, and we're coming up with these minimally viable products, and people become over time experienced disruptors, right? So why don't we break that down into two things? And like, um, I'm actually curious to reverse this. So I'm going to ask Justin this first, and then I'm going to go to John because I want to see what his perception of what that kind of phrase means um, prior to John diving into the explanation. So Justin, if you had to kind of explain in your perception, what an experienced disruptor would be, um, what would they, what qualities would they have?
3: No, luckily for you, I did have a minimal amount of time to prepare an answer. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, as I see the term and in the context of what we're you know, an experience disruptor is someone who who is looking at the experience that another person is having and saying, how can we modify this experience to improve it, to improve engagement, to improve adoption, to make it an easier thing for people? and, And that takes a different kind of thinking. It it requires somebody who can bring fresh eyes to situations, all situations, which is a a difficult thing to do. Uh, But if a lot of us sit down and think about it, you know, those are the most times we've been most successful is when you were the person who walked in knowing not a a great deal about a situation. But you said that one thing that kind of cleared the logjam for everybody else in the room because they were too stuck in their little box and they weren't going to see that. So that's the role that an experienced disruptor plays on a daily basis. They're always trying to step outside of that box and say, how could these things be done differently? How could we improve this, this situation for all involved?
1: Right. Right. I always say it's, it's the people that can,
3: hey, I'm going to need a, I'm going to need a grade on that response. I'll
1: go a minus. <laughs> a-.
3: All
2: right. Well, that's, I was going to give or you an A. Ball. I think it's you're you're spot on.
1: Yeah, well, I, I'm just like, I'm I just, need to give Justin like that little know.
2: push. Like, Hey, you know, you could always be better. No, you know, cause the,
1: he
3: don't, he does that.
1: He gave me, me a, seven. a seven. A seven
3: shouldn't even be on the scale. from I mean, One to 10 time. Seven's the cop out
2: <laughs> like me. I never give tens on those scores. So I always give people nines, no matter how good they are. It's always right. a nine. Right. Now you know,
3: seven's like, I didn't want to make you feel bad. So I just got <laughs> a six.
1: Right. That, that with, but the experience itself. So when somebody is inside of a sales cycle, Right. I want, like, John, I try to empathize with like the customer at that point, if they have an experienced disruptor coming into their workplace, how mm-hmm. might that customer be feeling if the person is executing it well? And then again, if that experienced disruptor is executing their interactions with them poorly, what are some ways that that customer like, what are they really feeling if somebody's trying to help them and they're doing it correctly
2: versus maybe coming at them a little sideways, yeah, that's a it's interesting that's a good good way to think of this let me I'm gonna go back another 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 little story I have on um making a presentation um in Denver, Colorado on on some of the things that we're we're going through. Uh, the industry or a couple of years ago, right sort of when cloud computing was sort of becoming more, was more, less for the startups and, and moving more into the enterprises. And, and this is a great example where if you were trying to sell something like that and you're trying to sell it to a operations person, somebody that's in charge of uh, keeping the lights on in a data center, running systems, upgrading them, installing them, um, all of a sudden, I, I made this I made this point that you know I said your your job is becoming obsolete because if you move all those workloads into into a cloud computer on Amazon or a Azure or IBM or a Google or somebody, you um all of a sudden uh we don't need all those people that are doing that work for you. And therefore we probably don't need you. And and so to answer your question, in that situation, that that experienced disruptor like an AWS or an Azure or one of these cloud computing companies, uh, they're, that person is now feeling uh, vulnerable. They're thinking that their job is at risk. They are probably doing things that are trying to, if they, they're either doing one of two things. They're either trying to build a wall around themselves so that they don't, you know, get, eliminated, or they're trying to change their roles and responsibilities so those are the kind of again that the empath- so if you empathize with that person and realize that the technology is disrupting their world which is potentially putting them out of a job right so they're going to feel anxious and, and and nervous and scared and they're going to be doing things that may not make sense in 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 a world if you th- you know and but now you go to a uh a developer, somebody that's trying to develop code. And now all of a sudden they can spin up systems and they can put up, they can get access to technologies for, you know, pennies on the, for the, you know, they can do it by the minute, by the drink. And all of a sudden they're excited. They are, they are moving quickly. They are, they're doing lots of iterations of code. So again, they're now on a very positive side because they're now this experience His disrupt the the experience disruptor has now given them access to stuff they never had before. But on the other side, within the same organization, now there's people that are really scared and they're thinking they're gonna lose their job. So as a salesperson, you gotta understand those two dynamics because one's gonna probably buy buy stuff differently than certainly the other. So that's that's sort of why I think this whole experience uh it's it's hitting people in different ways, some positive, some negative. And getting back and understanding and empathizing with that particular person that you're dealing with um, is going to really help you understand how to, and not only A, how to navigate the sales process or the sales cycle, but also just to come up with solutions that are going to be, help them, you know, get out of pain or get them, you know, save their job or, or stuff like that. Right.
1: right. I see Justin unmuted himself. So what do we got, boss?
2: Oh, no, I was just going to comment
3: on what John was saying. You know, and in that process, as you said, you know, you're going to have people who may potentially lose their jobs in that decision. And you've got the, you know, and your job is the, is the salesperson to say, you know, I want to make sure I bring a solution for both of these problems to the table. And to mm-hmm. clearly say, you know, if I want to sell the software that's going to put these people out of work, how can I also show my empathy and show my, my humanity by saying, and here's a plan for these other workers, right. you know, here's some things that I thought about that you could do to repurpose these people to help the organization mm. so that everybody wins. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes the math always doesn't work that way. That's reality of the world. But then that's when, well, what creatively can you do? Can you say, well, what, maybe with some of these savings, we're able to provide some type of support for these people. Which is a going to go a long way with them, but also go a long way with the community. Okay, and you, as the salesperson, have already thought out some of these failures that companies tend to accidentally overlook. Mm-hmm. And there wow. go my lights again, <laughs> man. I, when I was done talking, it was perfect.
2: Yeah. So you got to wave your hands around. So you know, to finish that story up, actually. So after my presentation, I'm you know doing the little thing. People are coming up, talking to me at the podium and stuff. And some guy walks up to me, and he goes. Because I basically said, if you're in this kind of role, be prepared. You're you're vulnerable, right? And this guy walks up to me, goes, "Man, I just got laid off from my job." And I went, "Oh my god, I'm so sorry." And he goes, "No, you're spot on. We started moving things out of our you know traditional world into this more cloud computing world, and I didn't need the 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 the, the, the systems programmers and the 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 the, the, the rack and stack." guys that, that you know put the computers up and maintain them and all that stuff and he said all of a sudden I was running a team and all of a sudden I didn't need I I, I cut my team back uh to and then all of a sudden my the manager realized they didn't need a manager and so they they he literally guy lost his job at the end of this but it was like so it was sort of a I felt really bad for the guy but at the same time he sort of resonated with the, the fact that this is what's going on in the industry today
1: yeah I mean and, and the thing is is that if the experience disruptor comes in and and we're starting off with the experience disruptor being the salesperson at this point, right? Coming in and, and implementing and trying to help get this new product started, and getting the snowball pushed off the side of the mountain, so to speak. Um, you really have a couple of options as somebody that is about to get disrupted. And that's something that I kind of want to hit right here before we get into our kind of wrap up, you know, section um, that that this is this final like 20 minutes if you say that you're really only ever two things either actively disrupting an industry or actively being disrupted what are some techniques maybe to figure out if you're getting disrupted or you're about to get your crap rocked super hard and like ultimately get just completely flipped upside down What are maybe some telltale signs that people can keep an eye out for that they're like, ah, maybe I should start trying to think innovatively. Otherwise I'm screwed.
2: Hmm.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I had espresso this morning. So I'm like, my brain is just whoop, constantly moving right now. No, no, no. Well,
2: I mean, some of it is, I I would, I, I would almost flip it backwards and say, you know, it's don't think it's sort of like, don't, you know, that light at the end of the tunnel is probably the train coming to run you over. <laughs> right. It's, it's, yeah. it's common one way or the other, particularly in large, you know, and so, um, you know, like I said, you're either the taxi, if you're sitting around, I mean, the, the telltale sign is don't be the taxi cab industry, right. Don't try to sort of, the, you know, put artificial barriers in place to stop this disruption. Right, right, because it's it's eventually the market is going to uh you know fail, and then a lot of people i mean the taxicab cab industry in New York City, you know the monikers the 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 medallions went from whatever it was like a million dollars a medallion to a you know three hundred four hundred thousand dollars a medallion, you know people right. are losing tons of money um and and but you you know look at the hotel industry like Marriotts and those guys they're they're they they they're they're not they're embracing the disruption right they're looking at ways to change their business obviously they've got a bigger problems with the covid stuff but they're looking at ways to sort of be more like an airbnb we do an airbnb not because you know the marriotts or whatever the hiltons or whatever the world are are they're great organizations i I mean i spend a hundred nights you know used to spend 50 nights a year in hotels um the convenience of me booking an Airbnb is, is is what I like, right? So if you can start to build that experience, you're going to compete with the Airbnbs of the world coming in. And, and the Airbnb, if you know that story, it's the reason they call it Airbnb is because the guy dreamed up selling, renting, if you will, air mattresses on his living room floor in New York City or something like that. Mm-hmm. And right. So he came up with this idea that he met a need where people needed quick, cheap sort of, you know, you know, places to stay, didn't need a lot of fancy, you know, you know, concierge, you know, rooms or executive suites or whatever. And then he built a, a technology platform to support it. Um, and so that's sort of what I think, you know, especially entrepreneurs, uh, hopefully we can, I want to talk a little bit about this sort of how do you apply some of these things to the, to the art, the entrepreneur in the startup world. Because oh, yeah. that they're the ones that can have this opportunity now, to, in my opinion, today to truly go in. I mean, ten, five, ten years ago, you couldn't compete with a Marriott or an IBM or a, you know, a, you know, you you know, a, the taxi cab industry. You name it, right? But now you can. Um, like so, that. like that. so that's sort yeah. of you just that's I, I'd say it's coming. So don't don't be take your head out of the sand and and look at it straight ahead and 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 prepare or look at ways how you as an entrepreneur proactively look at the experience that you know I like to say in the in the session we did Jan uh, a while back I talked about the sort of the you know the. The Mr. Coffee coffee machine that you make a cup of coffee on is not an experience, but going to Starbucks and buying the $5, you know, double chai latte, blah, blah, frappuccino, whatever, (laughs) uh, you know, is an experience. There's still the cost, the cost of making that cup of coffee is probably about the same, but Mm. but one is, you know, one sells for a couple bucks or 50 cents. The other sells for three or four dollars. And that's the because you're buying that experience. And people, I just read an article the other day about we're really turning into an experience economy, Mm -hmm. where people are doing things for the experience. And if I can provide a better experience, I'm going to buy your stuff, even though it, it may not be as better, it may not be as functional, it may not it may be even more expensive than than sort of the 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 other competitors in the market
1: yeah i really think that like as the person that is trying to figure out whether they're being disrupted or if they are actively disrupting Mm -hmm. if you feel like you're about to get disrupted you just need to stand by to get some you know (laughs) (laughs) so i'm I'm using that as a shameless shameless plug and flawless transition into um, allowing justin to actually talk about his shirt a little bit so his shirt (laughs) is something from a gentleman named jocko willick right and me and um justin follow him pretty faithfully over the course of what the last two years now um About 2 or 3 yeah he's so he's written multiple books he's a he's a prior service retired navy seal and has written books like extreme ownership and the dichotomy of leadership and stuff but that phrase specifically when you said when you're looking at the light at the end of the tunnel it's probably the train getting ready to hit you but literally the first thing that popped in my head was like check stand by to get yeah. some <laughs> like if, if that crap is coming down the pipeline like just you got to be ready to go so uh, justin i know that um there's a couple of times i watched you mute and unmute your mic so i'm sure there's a couple of things that we wanted to hop in on but to start off it, when somebody is in that moment now fight or flight is now kicked in they walked around the corner there's a bear that's about to come disrupt their industry and stuff um how do they potentially just stand by to get some what are the ways that they can try to hunker down or try to start putting into place things that they can pivot?
3: Well, you know, I, I would, I would recommend not being, uh, mugged by the bear, but, <laughs> uh, when that comes, you need to start to look at what you're doing. You know, John brought up coffee for instance. So, you know, the real person in that equation is Folgers. How can Folgers kind of own the experience? Because as we move away from Mr. Coffee and, and over to Starbucks, uh, you, I'm pretty sure they're not getting their beans, uh, from Procter and Gamble, or whoever owns Folgers, is it Smucker's now? I think Smucker's owns it now. I think Smucker's uh, does now. But they're not getting their beans. So how do they create an experience? What could mm-hmm. they do? Uh, personally, you know, could they sell or market other products with theirs? Say the French press, you know, or other ways to make coffee—a a drip thing at home. You know, you go into your local coffee shop and you see all these fancy devices. Uh, but maybe I'm that consumer who doesn't like. To go in and talk to a bunch of people or be bothered with having to get my, uh, myself out of bed an extra 15 to 30 minutes earlier so I can wait in that silly line to get that excellent cup of coffee. You know, mm-hmm. there's a market there too. And that's the thing you've got to look at it again is you know, the train's coming. Uh, it's going to get here. I eventually need to figure out how to take it head on. But how do I make small pivots along the way so that I can make sure I remain uh, alive and viable mm-hmm. to eventually figure out how I'm going to deal with this train when it gets here? and open up some breathing room, uh, and, and the real message for, for business owners and entrepreneurs is once you're complacent and once you're comfortable, you should immediately feel uncomfortable because that's a sign yes. that something's yeah. coming uh, <laughs> yes. The moment, you know, the moment that I get complacent and I'm not constantly saying, all right, where am I, where's this next, uh, door going to open? Where's this next problem going to be? Uh, then there's a problem. And that's where I think a lot of businesses find themselves mm. is, we're, uh, we're happy. We're content with what we have, uh, and we take that for granted. Right. And like I said, that should be a signal more than, than something you're excited about is, oh, I'm content. This means I'm probably getting stale. This means I'm starting that downward curve of this journey. Right. Or maybe about to go up over the hill, but you know, the downside of the hill is there. It's mm-hmm. just a matter of time.
1: Right. Yeah. And that's kind of our whole apex principles, right? Like you reach an apex, you have two choices. You either go down or you plateau, reevaluate and chase the next one. Like you have to figure out what that system is. And you have two options. You either try to maintain, step back, reevaluate and re-engage, or you just start going immediately off the cliff. I'm going to kind of give a little bit of a personal testimony to the entrepreneurial side and the startup side. And then I think that this is the perfect time to really dive in and get into the nitty gritty of that entrepreneurial startup world. Um, so what you guys we're, were talking about the train coming down the tunnel and all this other kind of stuff. And I just kind of had this epiphanous thought, I think, of of what it was like in the very, very early, early stages, right, uh, of, of owning a startup. Um, and right now, we're still very much an early startup. But... 2 years ago we didn't even know what we didn't know right and that what happens is is that you encounter a whole bunch of different trains along the startup journey the the issue is, is when you first start they're really close together like you walk onto a train track you're like ah I'm safe boom right get punched and then you like you're like okay maybe I'll try this train track and you like stumble over to the next one and it hits you again and then you like kind of walk, you're not like crawling, like praying to God that you don't get hit by another train, and then you still get smacked. But then the eventual goal is to be able to see that train 100 miles out. You know, and that's what entrepreneurship and I think being in the startup world really gets you to be good at is a being able to take a punch as much as rocky, right. But then also, slowly going from just 2200 vision to 2020 vision to 2020 vision with binoculars, where you can now see, ah, you know, I'm watching these market trends. I'm watching these companies. I know who the influencers are. I know what they're talking about. I'm trying to watch the trends. And now I'm starting to get better at almost predicting when that train is going to be on my set of tracks. And so if I know that it's going to start being on my set of tracks three to five years from now, I'm gonna go up to one of those turn points and pull the lever and alter my, my path just slightly. Um, so inside of that context, uh, John, what advice or other insights would you have for entrepreneurs and startups, particularly in Northeast Ohio and the Midwest, as it kind of pertains to the way that these disruptive market positions, um, in order for them to continue remaining competitive and growing their businesses?
2: Mm. Sure, good question. Um, so uh, yeah, just a little background. I've I've been mentoring um startups and entrepreneurs now for a couple of years in Northeast Ohio, and and what I've learned through that process is, and it's it's more of a mid, and I've sort of comparing that to what I would call the, the coasts. So sort of the, diff, the startup community either on the West Coast or the East Coast is a little bit different. But in, in Ohio, Northeast Ohio, and probably in the Midwest in general, what I've learned or what I've observed is most entrepreneurs have what they think are really good ideas. And they're really smart people and they are good ideas. Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean somebody's actually going to buy it. And so my advice always is to the entrepreneurs, at least that I've been mentoring, is take your idea. Um, and, and it goes back to that, you know, most startups fail, unfortunately, but the main reason they fail is because of poor market fit. And and it goes back to our whole concept of taking a step back and not only not just identifying the personas which might be, be using or buying your product or service, but really empathizing with them and really understanding what they do, what they think, what they feel, what they say, stuff like that, so that your idea can then match their needs, particularly if it's new and innovative. Because if you go ask, I see this mistake all the time, they go ask somebody, go, Jan, what do you need? I, and they go, I don't know. Or they they ask for you know world peace and hmm. solving hunger and a COVID vaccine all at once. And you Either can't deliver it or if you could, the cost would be so prohibitive, nobody's gonna buy it. So my advice to entrepreneurs is take your ideas, which are good, but don't take them for granted that they're just because it's a good idea, somebody's gonna buy it. Take that time and analyze your market and and don't just identify the, the personas within that, the buying personas. There's so much work done on buying personas, and I think people stop there you need to take it to that next step and that's where this whole design thinking concepts come into play um, now when you bas- say buying persona what do you, what do you mean by
1: developing a persona for somebody
2: so persona is the core of a, of a of a of a of the design thinking process right so you identify let's say a a like i'll use technology as an example i might have a a cio as a persona, or I might have a finance CFO as a persona, or I might have a developer as a persona. Right. And, and so you, when you try to sell something, you try to figure out what, uh, you know, you might have procurement. I'm sure Jason, Justin, in your world, you've got people, different personas that you talk to and you sell to um, and people try to identify those many, there's all kinds of stuff. From a lot of organizations on identifying these personas, and that's great. Um, and and essentially, what you do is you dissect the person, a persona, like it's a what it's a male. He's college educated. He you know he, he might have two kids, that kind of thing. But um, that my take is don't stop there just because you've identified what this persona that you might be selling to might be look like. Take again. Walk in their shoes, determine whether or not their needs and their concerns and the things that are disrupting their world um are something that you can actually provide i mean let's take Covid for example, you know, don't go try selling somebody a like a if let's say you're selling education or training right i'm that's actually what I'm telling a lot of software companies provide training but you're no longer going to sell it as a classroom face-to-face thing. It's just not going to happen. You're going to have to pivot that training to something you can develop to deliver virtually. And the reason is, you know, and that's a very simple example because it's easy to understand from the COVID perspective why I now have a – I can't travel. I'm, I'm shut down at home. Oh, by the way, I actually have a lot of spare time. I could really use time. One of the things I tell people is, you know, Now's the time to get people up to speed and and get them to adopt, particularly if you're in the software business, adopt your product, adopt your service uh, by by going deep dive into the training world. So that's that's the idea of a persona. You take the persona, you, you begin to apply these multiple design thinking techniques, which we we can talk about under on a different show, but that's how you then basically build something or you, As an entrepreneur, as a startup, you, you build something that somebody actually wants to buy. Because there's so many examples of people buy, coming up with great ideas, but nobody wants it. Nobody needs it. Or they don't know they need it, so they don't, they don't buy it. Yeah. I always think, too, of
1: things like, um, you guys remember Silly Bands? Those things that were like rubber bands that have like little shapes of animals and stuff on them that were huge for a couple of years. I always think about like people that come up with stuff that people absolutely do not need and still sell a crap ton of it. But, right. and, you know, there's a bunch of those, I mean, what is, like Furbies or like a lot of those toys that were just like, you know, children's toys always pop into my head too. Cause it's not something that we need, but you know, it's not something, but, but it's something that people buy a lot of. What do you got? Justin? <laughs> Pet rocks. Pet no. rocks. Yes. I, I was going
3: to say i was gonna go baby shark oh
1: my
3: god oh, that baby sharks i mean the, the marketing genius behind the most uh earworm of a song that any child can just tell alexa baby shark <laughs> it's, yeah it's that ridiculous up. Yeah. what do you what do you what do you think about the the
1: disruptive market is, especially here in northeast ohio justin like what with, with everything that's going on, and I mean, you've been involved with my world, with the entrepreneurial and startup world for a while, and I know that you've been involved with others, but um, what are you seeing as far as the market conditions in Northeast Ohio here?
3: You know, it's an unpredictable world out there. So, so typically when I'm asking, I don't know. You know, none of us know. What we do is it's, you know, day to day, I need to be responding. I need to be paying attention. I need to be reacting to these mm-hmm. things. Because, you know, quite frankly, what we would have started doing in March, you know, by the time we got to June, we needed a different plan. You know, and then, whoo, I was trying to move, guys. I really was. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it, it, as we go on, it, you know, it's it's done, it's not getting any better. Uh, but the thing is, I'm always thinking about it. We're always thinking about it. Uh, while a lot of people aren't. Uh, and that's what I try to people: you, you need to sit back. You need to think each day you need to assess the situation and say, all right, what am I going to do different today? See if it gets traction, continue to do it, all right? And once that goes, as I said, we don't get complacent. What am I going to do tomorrow to get traction? Because it's like monitoring the situation, things are constantly changing. And I constantly need to be thinking about that type of thing. Um, so that's that's the easy answer there. you know. And, and as kind of John was talking about with the persona review, is people always need to think deeper than that. We're always worried about, the customer or the person we're going to sell to, but we need to look out, well, what about their client or, you know, an individual, their family, you know, outside of their family, you go to the organization or the community, you know, and how do all of these people feel? Or if you're selling to a company, what do their customers want? Mm-hmm. You know, how do I anticipate a couple links down the chain? Cause that's eventually going to be that train coming at that person. Can I get in front of these things? and constantly thinking about that, testing ideas before you need the ideas. Mm-hmm. So then, then once the right stars align, you can go to the shelf and deploy, okay, we're going to try this. right? Because you know, we've constantly been thinking about uh, what's our contingency, what's our next plan? Yeah. You, know, you don't, you don't want to be, I guess I look at it, I don't want to be in the environment where I'm being disrupted and I have a plan. Oh, I have plans. Yeah. All right. We've gamed these. We've gamed these situations out to some degree, and if we haven't gamed this one out, we've probably done a couple that are close enough, or at least we've got the experience that we've gamed these things out. So when something comes at us, we've got a process that we're going to immediately go into, where other people are, are behind, just trying to figure out the process to begin to address the issue that's hitting them. Yeah. So yeah. that's what I do. You need to be prepared, even for things we don't even think we should be prepared for sometimes.
1: Right. And that's kind of the difficult part is preparing for things that you don't know that you need to be prepared for. And so like the, the two things that I have always advocated for when it comes to preparedness <clears throat> is one is a word and one is a concept. Right. So the word why is something that you should always have in the back of your mind. If you just constantly ask why, why somebody does something the way they do, why a process is what it is, why we have to use this piece of technology. Why does this person have to, you know, on and on and on. As long as you have that word in your vocabulary, you are drastically decreasing your chances of being disrupted. Um, you're actually increasing your chances of disrupting industries Correct. because you're asking why. Um, the second thing is, is this idea that I call the gas station clerk plan. Right. And I, I came up with this because as the, as an entrepreneur in the startup world, uh, Sometimes we believe that the only place that we get to vet ideas is at a pitch contest or at a class or in some type of bottom-up market analysis seminar or something along those lines. And I'm like, no, you got the Starbucks barista, you got the gas station clerk, you got the bank teller, you've got your mom, dad, friend, uncle, everybody and anybody that you come in contact with, you can start a conversation and then gauge based off of that person's body language the way that they're talking you know and the nice thing is is gas station clerks have no vested interest if and generally they're not like super super talkative they kind of want to move on with their day so if you can keep a gas station clerk involved in a conversation for a short period of time about a pitch you're probably on a pretty decent track right and then you just keep asking that question over and over and over again and eventually you can take it up to somebody like yoda and have an actual analysis done on it and then you may have an actual plan, right? But get out of the mindset that you have to be at a pitch contest or you have to be in the tunnel staring at the train by the time that you're ready to start vetting an idea. You can start talking to the operator all the way back at the station before you even start marching down the tracks. So those are my, those are my two little plugs there. John, what, what, are, what were you going to say before I kind of went on my little soapbox there?
2: Yeah, I got, now I got to remember. No, I was going to say on a positive side, back to sort of Northeast Ohio. And I think I think if COVID has taught us anything, and it's funny because I've been doing this for years. As I said, I'm sort of the self-proclaimed digital nomad. And, and part of the reason I live here in Northeast Ohio is because it's a great place to live. It was a great place to raise our kids. Uh, it's been traditionally a hard place to make, to, to earn a living. But I, so I literally would travel the world to do that but now with things being so more virtual and people starting to realize that most people can do their jobs anywhere i think ohio northeast ohio is well positioned because our cost of living is low except for our crappy winters but we make up for it with our wonderful summers i mean i work with a lot of people in austin texas and i explain to them that it's you know it's seventy five and there's no humidity and they're you know it's one hundred and two and they're dying, um, or they're <laughs> they're trying to uh, they're trying to avoid a hurricane or something. But I mean I think Ohio is well positioned from an entrepreneurial standpoint, um, and I hope some of the the big boys wake up the um, you know the Googles, the Amazons, the the Facebooks of the world because you know we've got good talent and we should be able to bring that talent up. People can live here for like Kings. I mean, you can buy a house in Northeast Ohio that would be cost millions of dollars on the coast. Um, And so, I mean, I think if we play this right, we should be able to not only draw talent, keep talent here in town or in Northeast Ohio, and and, then, and then, you know, build up the, the startup, and entrepreneurial community as a result that's that's my 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 sort of my vision and and sort of what i've been trying to do is i i mentor uh do my volunteer mentoring work with with a number of entrepreneurs
1: i definitely agree i think that the the entrepreneurial and the startup space inside of northeast ohio is just absolutely um polar opposite than what we all anticipated it would happen in march you know, yeah. when, when March hit, um, I mean, you, you know firsthand and you as well, Justin. I was self quarantined in an apartment at my alumnus because I was still working full time as an ICU nurse. I'm trying to, you know, do my, one of my first consulting gigs that was a massive pain in my ass. Um, and then just kind of continued embedding iteration after iteration after iteration. And I watched business, like people that I have known in the entrepreneurial startup world, drop like flies. I mean, they were like left and right. People were getting out of business and, you know, all this other kind of stuff. But then I started noticing <laughs> there was people starting businesses in the middle of the shit storm, They're They're starting something up. Mm-hmm. And I was like, that is one ballsy person, you know, with all of this stuff going on and the amount of people that have to be telling them that they are absolutely off their chain, you know, trying to do something at this period in time. Yeah. That's the kind of mentality that's like, hey, everybody else is grabbing their pants and crying in the corner. I'm going to go out onto the battlefield and see what's out there and try to figure it out mm-hmm. um, and i've seen I've seen a lot of it over the last three four or five months. you know people are coming out there being they're they're starting to awaken to the fact that not everything has to be as society has deemed it to be, right. We watched national mm-hmm. television stations be on Zoom calls basically at their homes, right? You know, we've had kids pop up on your CEO exec meetings because you're now at the home. You're getting a more empathetic connection with people because you're seeing them in their natural environment. And I've heard from a lot of people, um, and it, it's actually probably about 60, 40, 60 percent saying that they feel less connected, but still there's a good, there's a good percentage that's actually say the opposite, that they see a different side of their coworkers. Because they're now interacting with them while they're you know in their bedroom eating cereal, trying to get work done because right. it's a due date the next morning
2: no, okay? I think those,
1: those types of interactions are irreplaceable,
2: yeah, five years ago, if your dog started barking on a conference call you would you would cringe, you would be like, "Oh my God, you tried to hit the mute button as fast as you could, or if you, you know your kids walked into your home office and you know while you're on a call but now people are all doing this. And so they actually are now empathizing with, oh, well, yeah, you have a dog, you have a kid, you know, you have whatever, you know. And and so I think we're, we really are starting to see more of a human side, a human-centric um, side of, of business, which I think on the long... And, and if people that can figure out how to play off on that and capitalize on that, I think we'll, we'll do do well. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, look at us. You know, three years ago, we would have we would have probably all been in your studio down in Canton, uh, right? In a room, you know, and we would have, that would have been the norm. And now we're all in three different locations, you know, doing something that that allowed us to, and and again, part of that's the technology. That's the disruption of the technology that has allowed folks like you on to be able to, like you said, compete with a, with, you know, with a Viacom, right? We would have never been able to have done something like this, uh, four or five years ago, mm-hmm. would have you know would have been too expensive. The bandwidth wasn't there. The technology wasn't accessible. Um, but now you can start to build stuff. And I think this again, why what you're doing from your communi- your business, is 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 very innovative, right? Because you can, uh, you're 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 bringing forward good ideas. You are um, you're, you're 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 starting to play upon. Uh, and build uh, upon the work that you're doing with with your clients, and and it's and, and a lot of it's just starting here on on these podcasts. Yeah.
1: yeah, that's the big thing. Is it's just kind of all starting with conversations. Um, Justin, I, I'd like to kind of give you the floor here before we wrap up. Is there anything that's you know comments, questions, concerns? It's burning at your heart. You just got to get it out to the audience that we can wrap up with.
3: I have nothing. <laughs> I'm going to, have to, you know, I learned something today and I'm going to do better next time. That's what I got out of it. Yeah. You know, I learned something. I'm going to do better next <laughs> I love time. It.
1: All right, guys. So I appreciate your time. You know, it's early in the morning um, and taking the time on a Friday. I you know I was talking to Justin about it and he was like, dude, out of all the times, you know, the one Friday that I decided to take off work. You decide to have something at six o'clock
2: in the morning. He's like,
1: one time I take off work, six o'clock. I was like, yeah, it is. But
2: somebody suggested we do it Friday night. And I said, nah, that ain't going to work. <laughs>
3: right,
1: right. Yeah, yeah no, I, I wouldn't I, do I'm that I'm still going to have to do tonight because I still have Jason. Well, I might as well just talk about it right here. So this is one half, I go over here, one half <laughs> of the Disruptor team, right? You'd think after uh, almost 100 episodes that I'd have my rights and lefts down as far as a computer but apparently that's not a thing. Um, So we've got Justin Woods down below and John Coots right next to me here. And this is kind of going to be a section of the disruptor that's really focused on how do we use design thinking kind of in that sales world, right? How are we helping entrepreneurs? How are we helping startups? How are we helping with market fit and selling yourself or your product to the world, right? The nice thing about the disruptor is that we have another half of the team, Okay, the other half of the team is a gentleman named Jason Storch and Swayze Bahati, who you'll meet on the next episode. Um, and they're more in the data side of the world, right? Jason is an actual data analyst. He's a data scientist that's you know, Lean Six Sigma certified. He focuses on process improvement, and he really tries to bring all of this, these different silos together so that you can have an executable product. And then shway got his master's in um, human, uh, what is it? Human factors engineering, I think is what it's called, or human systems engineering. So he actually um, studied micro interactions with people and how to increase trust between people and AI. So it's super, super intricate. I'm really looking forward to the conversation with them. If you want to stay tuned to these conversations, all you have to do is either subscribe, if you're watching this on YouTube, Or you can like or follow the page if you're watching this on Facebook Um, and we will be putting episodes like this out every single week um, starting this you know with this episode so go ahead make sure that you're hopping on there you're you're clicking the like button you're clicking the follow button subscribing to the channels because we are going to be putting out a ton of valuable information through this channel so One last time, guys, I'd like to thank you for stopping over. And for everybody that's watching this, this is an Apex Communications production called The Disruptor. I look forward to talking to you next time. Until then, make sure that you're not getting disrupted and you're trying to see the train a little bit further down the tracks.